0: As with any effective organization or movement, the cause for life is only as strong as the people who choose to dedicate themselves to its mission. The fact that the pro-life movement continues to attract such a high caliber of talented individuals is a testament to its strength and longevity. Today we are joined by one of those young, talented individuals, Monica Moseman, current executive assistant to Catherine Glenn Foster, our president here at Americans United for Life, and soon to be legislative aide in the United States House of Representatives, We speak with Monica on her journey, fighting for life, what it's like to work in Congress, and her advice to those who may wish to follow in her footsteps. I'm Tom Shakely, and this is Life, Liberty, and Law. Welcome to Life, Liberty, and Law. I am Tom Shakley, and I'm joined today by Monica Moseman. Monica, so good to have you with us.
1: Tom, thank you for having me.
0: And we've also got Noah Brandt here back on the program.
2: We're sad to see Monica go here. It's uh, sad for this organization, but it's good for the country. Monica's about to go do some great work in the U.S. House Representatives. So excited to interview her as she leaves.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, we're going to get into that uh, shortly. But we've got to start where we start, which is Monica. Where are you from originally? What's your background?
1: Well, I actually am one of the few who is a DC, Virginia native who still lives in this area. I
2: I think the second person on, we've
1: interviewed on the podcast is <laughs> right. like a DC native. <laughs> yeah,
2: Matt Hedro. <laughs> yep.
1: Yeah. And I uh, I grew up in Centerville in Manassas, Virginia. I uh,
2: explained where for someone like me who lives in D.C. but is not familiar with the surrounding areas is Manassas is like what forty-five minutes into Virginia. Where Centerville?
1: Yeah, roughly forty-five minutes, and Centerville is just a forty minutes away. So it's about a five-minute difference. On and the these highway. are all
0: communities that feed into the the D.C. culture, the Greater D.C. area,
2: the D.M.V. Right?
1: Oh, absolutely. It's a uh, very crowded suburb of D.C.
2: Would you you say, Monica, where you grew up in those areas, are they like primarily, are most people like driving into D.C. every day to go to work?
1: Oh, there are so many people who commute from Manassas and the surrounding areas into D.C. on the VRE or a slug line like I've been doing. A for, slug line. For the last six months This is the so. real reason
2: we've had you on the podcast. Talk about <laughs> what a slug line is really quickly. I, I had never heard of this till you told me about it. You d- do this every single day.
1: I do. We drive to a large commuter lot and drop off the car and then get in line, a particular line going into a particular part of the city, wait in line for somebody to drive up who's going to near I need to be, and I hop in the car and... I get a free ride and they get an extra passenger for HOV lanes.
2: And here's the thing that I need everyone to understand that my mind has a tough time comprehending. No money is exchanged. This is like purely like 1950s America, like helping out (laughs) your neighbors, sort of like (laughs) intangible goods are exchanged, but like, it's just, you know. Okay. I didn't know about that.
1: Yeah. No money. It's all free. There's not really uh, any conversation that happens in the car either. Unless (laughs) 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 Unless <laughs> that's you're that's very <laughs>
0: <laughs> everyone's ideal uber right <laughs> yeah. uh that well i guess i'm moving to uh to northern virginia then
2: if that's how this works that's right and so then monica gets to be with the people and she gets to say i, I slug to work you slug
1: yeah i slug i am a slug <laughs> either way <laughs> it's the same thing is that thing. what the riders are called yeah
0: <laughs> so that's cool and the vre is the uh, equivalent of a uh, suburban train it's uh, like long island railroad or um yes. septa yeah Now, Monica, you come not just from Northern Virginia, but a big family, too, right? Tell us about that.
1: I do. I am one of eight kids. I'm the third of eight children. So we we lived in Centerville, then we moved to Manassas, and there's never a dull moment. Uh, Most of my siblings still live at home, as I do right now, and there's always something going on. I
2: think that's so cool and it's that used to be the norm right in America a big family uh I think it's a pretty unique experience now we had Mary Eberstadt on the podcast a few weeks ago and she was talking about how fewer and fewer Americans even have that experience of like what a sibling relationship is uh nonetheless seven siblings so it's like has that affected the person you are today like would you be different if you didn't have seven siblings?
1: Oh definitely because i i haven't really had my own time or my own space or my own belongings or really anything we share everything and it's just always been expected.
2: Now people saying that might think that's a negative thing, right? People are like, "Oh, i like my own space and my own things." But like it's it's positive in a lot of ways, right?
1: Yeah, in a lot of ways. In a lot of ways it's challenging and you know, we'll each put things somewhere in the house and they of course, get moved somewhere else, and everybody is always trying to find their stuff that somebody sure. naturally moved to a different part of the house. But uh, it definitely teaches a lot of patience and just the importance of sharing and giving.
0: Yeah, we've talked about this sort of thing in the past with Clark Forsyth uh, in relation to especially the issue of prudence and uh, and the virtues generally, right? And it's easy to forget virtues have to be worked out with other people. You know, yeah. they can't be worked out in abstract. It's not like, you know, going to the gym by yourself And so I think that's one of the beautiful things about a big family is that it does put you in that situation. And you see on the reverse, uh, when it comes to the pro-life movement, especially people will hold that up and they'll say, well, I don't want to deal with that. And you, you look at the reality of most families today where you have one, maybe two kids. Um, Mm -hmm. at the same time, our, our housing has gotten bigger. Our houses have gotten enormous, even as our family sizes decreased. Mm -hmm. So it sort of, I think speaks to a, a thing in our culture where we're trying to work out like, what are the things we're pursuing? We want a big house, we want careers, but we don't want necessarily to have as many people to share them with.
1: Yeah, that's so true. And I mean, growing up with a lot of siblings too, I just had uh best friends automatically in my siblings.
2: What what's the generational like are like what's the difference <clears throat> between the youngest and oldest sibling in your family?
1: There are seventeen years between my oldest sister and my youngest brother. That's a long time. Yeah. That's, that's a really long time. That's
2: almost like two different. You know, those can be two different, very different childhoods.
1: Yeah, and my nephews are closer in age to my my youngest brother, of course, than than some of my older siblings.
2: And I, I think that teaches something in and of itself. Uh, like I, this is something I always say a good thing about homeschooling, but I think it's also think it's a good thing about having a big family that has younger and older siblings is I don't think it's good for kids to always be dealing with people their age or, like, that close to their age. Like, it doesn't teach them useful skills. Like, there's nothing else in your life where you're like, everyone else I'm dealing with is 11, I'm 11. Oh, yeah. So it's nice when you're, you know, when you're the 8-year-old younger sister and you have, like, a 15-year-old or 20-year-old sibling. It's like you you learn something different from those people than you do peers who are your own age.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. My youngest brother, Mark, just turned uh, 13, and he... He just seems like he's so much older and he interacts, everyone that he interacts with around our house is so much older. And so I think uh, what you were saying, it's been a really good experience for him growing up.
2: So what's your educational background, Monica?
1: I started at Franciscan University of Steubenville. I always knew that I wanted to be a nurse. So that's, that's where I started. And
2: what was it that, why'd you always know that? Why'd you want to be a
1: nurse? I really wanted to help people, and I really wanted to be a labor and delivery nurse. I've just really always loved babies, honestly.
2: That's incredibly sweet. (laughs) Thank
1: you, (laughs) Noah. (laughs) And I was really excited about the program. I got through pre-nursing and the first year of nursing, and then when we started doing clinicals in the hospital, I, I just realized it was not for me when I watched the surgery and couldn't couldn't handle being around blood so that was a new that'll do it there's like a experience. catalyzing moment for you it definitely was um can't really
2: avoid that as a nurse yeah yeah
1: so that was it was good i'm really glad that i figured it out early i took some time off of school because i then i really had no idea what i wanted to do i ended up back at franciscan studying biology and uh minoring in philosophy that's awesome yeah
0: and you still found a way to come back and uh, and support the babies, too.
1: Yes, in a different kind of way.
0: <laughs> so how did you come to Americans United for Life?
1: At the time, I was working on the Hill, and I was looking for a change of pace and wanted to do something more related to the pro-life cause and bioethics, which is what I intended to get into by studying biology and philosophy. AUL seemed like it would probably be a good fit and help me work towards... Those goals.
0: Monica, why are you passionate about fighting for a culture of life and laws that reflect that?
1: I have always been super pro-life growing up in a very big Catholic family. It's just always been a part of me from the very beginning. We've gone to the pro-life march every single year since I was in elementary school. And I, I did want to take care of babies when I thought I wanted to do nursing. And there is no better way to take care of babies than by fighting for laws that protect them.
0: You mentioned that you spent time on the Hill before. Let's talk about that for a minute. What did you do on the Hill?
1: I worked as a staff assistant and a legislative correspondent for Congressman Ken Buck from Colorado.
2: Now, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, you know, this is, we, Tom introed you by saying you're such a talented, young, ambitious individual, agreed on all fronts. Weren't you an intern in his office for like three days and then he promoted you or something?
1: It sort of, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it did work out that way. Uh, I started as an intern. I was there for about a week and I, I took a vacation to visit my brother abroad. And the day I came back, they offered me a position as staff assistant.
2: An internship on Capitol Hill is like a rite of passage for people for, who either went to college around here or grew up around here or live here. And it's like a lot of people are interns for three months, six months. I know friends who've been interns for a year. It's mm-hmm. good to point out interns at Capitol Hill are 99% of the time not paid, mm-hmm. uh, doing, you know, still challenging work, talking to constituents, answering letters. So you, <laughs> you, you were a staff assistant. Uh, talk about what that means. Uh, and, and legislative correspondent. Sure. So both of these words can be uh, weird.
1: As a staff assistant, I booked tours for constituents uh, coming into town and visiting the Capitol, tours of the Capitol. I would book the tours. Important thing to know
2: that all constituents can go to their congressional office and get a nice tour.
1: Oh, yes. Any constituent from anywhere in the country, just go to your congressman's website or call their office. You can get a tour. Uh, Call their office. Talk to their interns. Yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I would either give tours or get our interns to give tours. You can also purchase a flag to be flown over the Capitol for a particular occasion or a particular person as a gift, and I organized that and orchestrated that in our office. I was in charge of the interns as intern coordinator, in charge of hiring them and training them. And while I was staff assistant, I was also a legislative correspondent, which entails being in charge of all of the mail that comes into the congressional office, physical and emails. Uh, sorting through them and figuring out the appropriate response and sending out responses to all the constituents who write in, asking the congressman to hear them out or for help in And we've some talked way.
0: about this before with Katie Glenn on Life, Liberty, and Law, the, hmm. the role of reaching out to your elected officials, both on the national and the local level.
2: And oh, there's, yeah. and being a legislative correspondent, I mean, Monica, as Monica just said, their entire job, and Monica was pulling double duties as staff, staff assistant legislative correspondent, But a legislative correspondent's whole job is to deal with the mail. And it is a giant job. It is. But, you know, people's letters are really getting thoughtful responses most of the time. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the the information that legislative correspondents are pulling from as they write the letters are from the member themselves.
1: That's right. That is exactly right. It is. Yeah. Members get a lot of mail every single day. So how
0: do you deal with the contradiction that, the government itself seems to move slow or sometimes not at all, sort of by design. You know, gridlock is built into the democratic system. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't want something that's too efficient. That's a dictatorship. Uh, but on the other hand, you need to be responsive to people's needs. And so you're getting these, these floods of mail coming in, uh, mm-hmm. correspondence of all types. You need to be responsive. But is there always something that can be done? And how do you deal with that challenge?
1: Since I didn't actually work on casework and helping people in a more practical way... But it is interesting that it does seem that the government works very slowly, yet working on Capitol Hill is extremely fast paced and there's, there are always a million things going on and it's nonstop and you have to be able to uh, prioritize everything that's going on in a timely fashion and there's just always a million things to do. So while from the outside looking in people think, that Congress uh, and the government is not doing anything, but having been there and worked there, it just seems like we're always doing everything.
2: I
0: think that's a great example too for folks, especially who are more inclined to be cynical or jaded about politics, who might live anywhere in the country, Mm -hmm. to take advantage of these tours that are offered uh, in Washington and come see it up close, and to realize, you know, at least to cast off some of that cynicism and to Mm -hmm. say, these are people like me who are doing their best and the system may have its its flaws and its problems but this is still a great nation uh, and it's still being powered by people of of earnest good faith.
1: Oh yeah, definitely. And working there really humanizes everyone too. I think sometimes people can forget that members of, you know, the House and Senate and in the government are are regular people just like us. I mean, they have to eat dinner, they try to get to the gym, they, you know. Same 24
0: hours in the day, right? Exactly.
1: They're not superheroes, and they're not superhuman, and I think a lot of times we kind of expect them to be, which is a little bit unfair, I think.
0: And there are no super villains either, despite, you know, we might want that, (laughs) but for our own purposes.
1: Absolutely.
2: Monica, you're heading back to Congressman Kim Buck's office, and like I said, we're sad to lose you, but I know you're going to be doing some really important work there. Uh, What will you be doing there, now, and uh, what are you most excited for?
1: Sure. Uh, I am going back as a legislative aide, and I will be working on various policy issues for for Congressman Buck, healthcare, education, trade, uh, and a few other things.
2: Now, here's an interesting thing about congressional offices. So, you know, you have these uh, a couple legislative aides or or legislative assistants who have these portfolios of Mm -hmm. issues. And they're pretty divergent. Like you, you're working on healthcare, and then you're also handling like technology, right? Right. And so yeah, you're that's ex- right. you're expected to be pretty well versed in all this different stuff. And there's only a few people in each office, and every single political issue needs to be covered. So how do you go about sort of educating yourself so you can be a good conduit for the member and uh, serve the interests of the district effectively?
1: Sure. I think it's really up to each legislative staffer to just become an expert on the issues that they have to handle and do as much research as possible and really get to know their member and how their member feels about specific issues. Always be up to date on legislation that's going through the House and the Senate just to really make sure you are always informed.
2: Yeah, I think that's a fantastic point. I wanted to break down with you as a Capitol Hill veteran and uh, sort of what a congressional office looks like and like what the hierarchy looks like. I think it's yeah. kind of interesting for people. Uh, so at the very top, you have the member. <clears throat> Buck stops with them. They're in charge of everything. But as you said, 24 hours in a day, the member can't do everything. You know, they, they might want to. Some members are more micromanagers than others, but they can't do everything. So they have a staff. Oh, yeah. So under, under the member, we have the chief of staff right? And the chief of staff in your experience is what? They're sort of like the whole boss of the entire office. Like what's been your experience with the chief of staff?
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, our chief of staff just oversaw everything and oftentimes calls a lot of the shots. Uh, everything that's really crucial and really critical goes to the member or there may be specific things that each member wants to know about. Right. Sometimes Ken Buck will get on the phones and answer constituent calls. Wow, so good for him. I think it's different for probably for every member, but our chief, if if we needed an answer for something or needed guidance on something, you know, we ordinarily just go through the regular hierarchy, but usually our chief would make those decisions and make those calls.
2: Right. And oftentimes the chief is pretty good personal friends with the member, or at least has known them for a long time. Like the person in the office who can maybe be brutally honest when necessary uh, is the least afraid of uh, repercussions because they're, they're there to sort of tell them hard truths. So after chief of staff, we have two sort of diverging branches of who handles the different things in the office. We have a communication director that handles press and all sort of outgoing media and messaging. And then we have a legislative director that handles the actual internal things in Congress, trying to pass bills, write bills. And so a legislative director has these legislative assistants and legislative aides working under them, right? That's right. And so like as a legislative aide, it's like you you have these portfolio of issues that you discussed and what, what will you be doing with those? You'll be writing legislation. You'll be writing policy papers. Like, like what, what will actually your day-to-day look like?
1: I think it will be a lot of research and, you know, the legislative staff, like I mentioned before, really make themselves the experts on all of the issues, researching, drafting legislation, being able to advise the member on these issues so they can make informed decisions about which way they need to vote
2: right and you'll be and i'm sure you'll be taking probably you know constituent meetings or outside group meetings you know for example whenever a, someone from americans united for life wants to meet with a member oftentimes they'll meet with a legislative aide that works with health care works with the rights of conscience or works with bioethics uh so is that a part of the job that you're excited for sort of like p- potentially with meeting with um advocacy groups or constituents who care about these issues
1: yeah i think that that's really important and it's important for people to know that they can meet with you know their member their representative in congress or their representative staff and that they will be listened to and their concerns and their opinions will be taken into consideration and the legislative staff reports all that information back to the member again so they can make you know the best decisions in regards to how they vote and what's best for for their district and their constituents
0: I think it's fascinating to think about this because, on the one end, you look at the way Congress functions and you sort of wonder, I think, to yourselves, there's the stereotype that they're only listening to the sort of moneyed interests, right? The lobbyists from K Street and elsewhere who have some axe to grind for whatever their industry is. But there's the great and greater majority of interests coming in that are there because they're motivated by a cause or an issue. Uh, that doesn't concern um, either money or self-interest necessarily. The pro-life movement is a great example of this. And then you also wonder, you know, who's interfacing with them then? And you th- you mm-hmm. look at the think tank world. And so if you look at the two separately, you kind of wonder, how do these things work together? You know, what is a Heritage Foundation or a Center for American Progress or an American Enterprise Institute or an American Center for Life? Who do they talk to? And so I think the the way we're breaking this down is is helpful to understand This is how it works uh, in Washington, Mm -hmm. and a version of this is how it works in the state houses as well, is that the people who we elect to make decisions on our behalf, they need advice. And so these mediating institutions, these think tanks, uh, function just like universities in that respect of sort of educating and equipping decision makers to make hopefully the most informed decision, hopefully the most prudential decision, uh, and speaking with folks like yourself in these offices uh, to get their foot in the door. Monica, you're in the midst of this transition. So as you look back on your work with Americans United for Life, what advice might you have for people looking to become active in the cause for life?
1: In my uh, experiences on the Hill and at AUL, I I think I've really learned a lot about um, people and how they think based on what's important to them. You know, constituents call in wanting the congressman to know how they feel about issues and um, people who feel very strongly on both sides of the pro-life movement. I think it really helps to listen to people who do not agree with you and who don't agree with your position when it comes to life issues. Being empathetic and understanding I think is really important. People really want to be listened to and know that they're heard and that they're understood. And if they can feel like you're doing that, you're you're there for them, and you're hearing them out and you you know listen to what they have to say. I think it opens the door to a much more constructive conversation.
0: Yeah, when people know that someone is actually listening and hearing and contemplating and responding you have the chance actually then for a genuine dialogue. And that's, I think, why so many people react um, intuitively against the media culture we're in because they see that's not happening. They see, isn't this just a series of talking points that that two sides are throwing up against one another? Uh, Where's the real dialogue? Where's the real thoughtfulness? Uh,
1: Exactly. And I think a lot of people, you know, just feel so strongly. They feel like they have to express their opinion in a really strong way and maybe expecting an equally uh, aggressive response or defense. And if you can answer them, not with the same level of, of passion that they might be using to express themselves, I think it can kind of take people back. Just open, open the door for, like I said, more constructive and helpful conversation and dialogue.
2: Monica, you're like a really nice, normal, and I mean that in a very positive way, person. Like you don't seem <laughs> like a crazy I. Washington DC <laughs> Politico person. But, you know, you do work in the public policy making process, both of you did here and you will be working very directly at it in uh, the U.S. House. What do you say to people who think that there's no nobility left in this type of profession, that it's so corrupt or it's so beyond saving? Uh, what do you say to a person who maybe is, uh, you know, about to go to college, finishing college or trying, wanting to change careers? Is there nobility sort of in the politics or in the profession of public policy?
1: There definitely is. And, and there has to be. And if People really believe that there isn't. That's pretty depressing and sad.
0: They should go watch Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Right, they it's still should. applicable today. I think
1: uh, there, there definitely is. There are definitely principled people who work in these areas, and we, you know, need to support them. And
2: I couldn't agree more. And it's so important to to realize, as you're saying, that there are principled people who work there. But also that if more principled people don't want to work there, right, like a Monica or like someone else is considering it, then it will get worse. It won't get better. So it's like, I, I think if someone's ever considering wanting to work in something like this, but they're sort of afraid of the culture, mm-hmm. is that uh, the only way to change the culture is kind of when you're in it, you know, is when right. you're working and when you're in the trenches doing the, doing the hard stuff, right?
1: Right. And I think it's important to, I mean, not give up hope in regards to that, I suppose, if people really do believe that it's all gone south then they kind of just give up and assume that there's nothing they can do, which is a terrible approach because then there will be nothing that you can do and it all will go wrong. So I think to try to keep it in a positive light if possible, when possible, and just to know that there are really good people really trying uh, to do what's, what's best for our country.
0: Yeah, this is, I think, a a lesson that you see over and again in the history of the pro-life movement, which is it's a movement that has always been fueled by hope. Uh, And this is a a, a hope distinct from sort of a a blind optimism or or just an empty optimism. It's a hope that says so long as there are people confronting problems, challenges in their own lives uh, regarding human life, whether that's an unexpected pregnancy as a mother and a father or whether that's caring for an aging loved one or some issue in between, We have to live with the hopefulness that we can meet the challenge and that Mm -hmm. as a community we can help one another meet these challenges. Uh, And I think that's the same thing for the political process. The the minute we lose hope um, or on the other end sort of cling to a blind optimism that, well, things will just work out somehow, Mm -hmm. Um, but we, we don't show any willingness to put our skin in the game then those are the situations where we have trouble, but it's with that living with hopefulness that we can actually hopefully nourish and restore the sort of culture we want to have.
2: I think you're so right, Tom. And if, you know, some people talk about things are so far gone, I'm just going to remove myself from the conversation. It's like, if you remove yourself, well, then no wonder things are so bad. Like you have to you have to be in the fight to win the fight.
1: Right, exactly.
0: And no doubt, you know, every, every congressperson hears some of that too. It's those folks who say, I'm just going to remove myself from the fight. But then I'm going to send angry letters every week to my representative. (laughs) Monica, let's talk for a moment about bioethics. I know you have had some experience in this, especially through the National Catholic Bioethics Center. What don't people know about bioethics?
1: Bioethics is very complex and even more so than I originally thought it was uh, after attending the National Catholic Bioethics Seminar. As our technology increases, bioethical issues become more and more complex um, because people forget the dignity of every single human person and start experimenting on people in various ways. And it's just wild what we're capable of doing with technology and all the intricacies that go into into bioethics. It's just way more than I ever thought it would be.
0: Yes, I mean bioethics as a modern field really came about in the 1970s. It started. uh, The the Kennedy family was actually instrumental uh, in the development of the field as a particular field of study. Started at Georgetown and in a few other places in the country. And you know, we've talked before in the program with Wesley J. Smith and with Charlie Camosi and others uh, about bioethics and you know a way to understand what is bioethics. um, You described it well, and I think of it personally as meeting out. What are the conditions necessary to promote a holistic human flourishing. You know, sometimes people think about bioethics in the sense of like, what are the things you can't do, for instance, like technologically to a person that would violate their dignity or their good. Um, But it really ultimately comes down to to flourishing. And we have to be cautious that we're not sort of othering any class of people and sort of segmenting them or segregating them into a zone in society where we say, well, it's okay to do it to to those people, to um, say human beings at the earliest stages of life, uh, the embryo, or to mm-hmm. folks at, at, at the other end of life um, who maybe have lost some autonomy or even legal competence. It's okay to do things to them.
1: Right. And then I think in those situations, we're kind of playing God and elevating ourselves to a higher position than we really deserve or or actually have when we decide you know, what we can or can't do to some individuals.
2: Monica, is being pro-life being pro-science or anti-science?
1: Definitely pro science.
2: You say this is someone with a hard science background, right? It's like you know most of the people who have yelled to me that being pro life is anti science are like definitely political science majors, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, you, what, what's your degree in? Biology. Biology, right? So, so right. T- talk just for a moment to your experience as a young woman who's like has a hard science background, um, being inundated with this message from so many mainstream outlets that you know being pro life is anti science.
1: It's really unbelievable, especially considering how advanced our technology is. I mean, there's no denying scientifically when conception happens. And I think people just can't bring themselves to believe that what they believe about abortion isn't true or that.
0: And people look to the Supreme Court on this issue because, you know, as a sort of a teaching office in the public square, the Supreme Court has said, you know, in Roe and subsequently in its abortion jurisprudence that, you know, that we sort of don't know. I mean, they've, they've sort of play acted as if these questions are open-ended, as if embryologists wouldn't be able to tell you when human life begins.
1: Exactly. It is it is really unbelievable that people can pretend like we do not know and have these scientific facts about embryology and, you know, developmental embryology. It's It just couldn't be any more obvious
0: and this is when it does meet the political sphere because then we have to say what are the ethical norms we're going to apply to what we know to be true scientifically so you know the interaction of of science with ethics with politics in order to achieve justice right. that's that's exactly the intersection that we're trying to figure out monica i think i speak for all of us here at america's United for life when i say it's been an absolute pleasure working with you in the cause for life And we're sorry to see you go, but excited to see you go uh, somewhere where you can be even more impactful on the Hill. Monica, you're no doubt aware that something we do is our shot of gratitude. So we'll start with you. What is something that you are grateful for?
1: I am getting married in the next seven months. So that's awesome. I am very excited uh, and I'm very grateful for my fiance, Mark.
2: Congratulations, Monica. That's huge. Thank you, you. Just got engaged recently. So it's like from engagement to marriage, how many months will it be? I know it's a pretty quick turnaround.
1: Just over eight months. Eight months, wow. A
2: 2020 wedding too.
1: 2020.
2: Biggest event of 2020, you know? That's
0: right. All right, Noah, what is something you are grateful for?
2: I'm really thankful for this for this crisp autumnal weather. Uh, I love the fall. I love the gourds of fall, mm. different squashes and pumpkins. I think it's the prettiest time, and I think that it's a reminder of, uh, you know, it's like uh, whenever you're going through a tough time, God's creation and looking at this really beautiful stuff and the way the seasons change. I'm very, I'm very thankful for fall, Tom. What are you thankful for?
0: All right, no, you've got me thinking now of this onion piece from a few years ago that seems to be reshared every autumn. Somebody just shared this like a week ago on Facebook. It's the Mr. Autumn Man walking down the street with <laughs> a cup of coffee, wearing sweater over plaid colored shirt. That's that's the season, and I'm looking forward to that. It's a Sweater pleasant season, time. Blazer season, it's a good time.
2: It'll be hard without Monica, as Monica is on, on Capitol Hill, but it will I still be a very pleasant guys. season.
0: Monica, thank you for joining us, and thank you for your exemplary service to America's United for Life. We're going to miss you, and we look forward to following your career and visiting you on Capitol Hill.
1: Absolutely. I Congratulations, Monica. Thank you very much.
0: Did you enjoy the show today? If you did, and even if you didn't, pull up Apple Podcast or wherever you're listening, and leave us a great review, leave us a rating, and tell your friends and family about us. This is how we share the pro-life message and get these conversations out there to folks that need to hear them. If you have any questions, comments, suggestions, whatever, drop us an email at org. I'm Tom Shakley, and until next time, thanks for listening to Life, Liberty, and Law.